Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Instrumental, a podcast about music and the mind. I'm your host, Bria, and if you are a regular listener, I first off want to say thank you for your patience. Um, I've been off for the past two weeks because life's been busy. Just a heads up, after this episode, there's one more episode coming out for season one, and then I'm going to go back on a break while I prep for season two. Until then, please keep sharing this podcast, uh, and we'll be back with bigger and better episodes in the fall, which I'm super excited about. Today's episode, though, is diving into congenital amusia, which is a musical disorder in which people are born without the ability to hear musical pitches, so to speak. So, like, people that are actually tone deaf. We're going to talk about where amusia comes from, whether people with amusia can still enjoy music in their daily lives, and what amusia can tell us about the neurobiological origins of humans' musical abilities. Keep listening to find out more. In previous episodes, I've really emphasized the idea that everyone is able to engage with music. If you've listened to episode four, that's all about infant musical perception, we know that little babies can hear um, notes in a musical scale that are out of tune, or they can differentiate rhythms from the get-go. But I want to add this caveat uh, to that statement I've made before. It is not the case that everyone processes music equally well. Some people are really bad at perceiving certain elements of music, like the melody or the rhythm or maybe something else. These people have a neurological disorder known as amusia, a meaning without and musia meaning music. Now, I know from the intro, there are probably a few of you out there who are thinking to yourselves, oh, I totally have amusia. I don't have a good ear for music, I can't carry a tune in a bucket, I have no sense of rhythm. Uh, Usually, though, when people say this to me, they're, I don't know, I feel like that indicates that they're more self-conscious about making music or singing in front of others, which is totally understandable. making music with people can feel like you're putting yourself out there. But I find that that self-consciousness is usually separate from the person's actual musical processing abilities. So I'm going to just put this out there and say that you probably do not have amusia. Amusia is defined as a music perception disorder independent of any limitations in your ability to hear and in the absence of another cognitive disability. People can get amusia in two main ways. One is called acquired amusia, in which someone has normal musical processing abilities, but after they experience a brain injury like a stroke or a traumatic brain injury, depending on where the damage was done in the brain, the parts of music that that brain area was responsible for processing can be compromised. Uh, So that's called acquired amusia, but the other type of amusia, which is called congenital amusia, is actually going to be the focus of most of the research in this episode. So congenital amusia means that someone is born without the ability to perceive musical pitch structures or that you're actually tone deaf. These folks aren't able to correctly perceive musical pitches that are often described as the height of a note. So like a note can be really high or really low 
And estimates predict that 1.5 to 4% of the general population has congenital amnesia. People with congenital amnesia have normal hearing abilities, there's nothing wrong with their ears or auditory pathways, they don't have speech or cognitive delays, and they were not musically deprived when they were children. They're able to identify familiar environmental sounds, they understand speech, they can recognize different people's voices, they can even hear when the tone of a speaker's voice goes up or goes down, which is called speech prosody. But folks with congenital amnesia cannot detect when music is out of tune, they can't remember short melodies in their short-term memory, and they're usually not able to recognize familiar songs when the lyrics are taken out. These people have trouble hearing the differences in pitches that are two semitones apart, which is also known as a whole step in Western music. It sounds like this. Granted, a whole step is a pretty small acoustic interval, but humans are able to detect much smaller differences in pitches, so in Western scales we have the half step, and most people can hear even smaller deviations in pitch than a half step. So, sort of like if you've ever gone to karaoke and someone's not doing the best rendition of a song, you might be able to tell what note someone's trying to sing, but you can tell they're singing out of tune. This is your brain picking up on an even smaller interval difference than a half step. And there are other non-Western musical tonal systems that incorporate pitches smaller than a half step, also known as microtones. So someone with normal pitch perception is able to make much finer distinctions than what people with amnesia can in terms of musical pitch. Now, you may be asking, why would researchers want to understand the absence of musical abilities? Shouldn't they be more interested in studying people with normal musical abilities or even uh, excellent musical abilities, like musical prodigies to understand how music is processed by humans, not how music is not processed by humans? For most of us, even if you're not a musician, music can seem like a fundamental, basic human experience. But there's so many variables to account for when you're trying to understand a typical music experience. So um, for any one song, there's like all the actual acoustic elements like the rhythm and the melody and the harmony and the instrumentation. Not to mention all of the emotional and cultural and personal associations wrapped up in any one piece of music. Untangling all these variables makes studying how humans process music really challenging. But with people with amnesia who have very selective deficits in processing certain aspects of music, these really specific music perception anomalies can help researchers pinpoint where specific elements of music experiences may be located in the brain, which can be really difficult to untangle otherwise. To me, amnesia is such a fascinating topic because it just seems so different than my musical experiences as a musician, and I want to understand it also as a music therapist. I first heard of amnesia when I read neuroscientist Oliver Sacks' book, Musicophilia. It's a classic read for a music psychology enthusiast, so definitely check it out. I will include a link in the show notes. 
In Chapter 8 of Musicophilia, Dr. Sachs introduces Mrs. L, a woman who was in her 70s when he interviewed her, who had never been able to hear music per se. She had congenital amnesia. Although she grew up in a musical household, Mrs. L was never able to understand or enjoy music like everyone else in her family around her. More specifically, she had great rhythm, she enjoyed tap dancing, but it was the pitch and melodic elements of music that she had trouble with. She described going to musicals and concerts and sitting through them um, with annoyance because it sounded like noise to her. It was total cacophony. She was a teacher, and so she would play these recordings of Happy Birthday for her student's birthday, and she'd hear this tune dozens of times a year, but she could never hum the melody of Happy Birthday herself. And when she was tested for her musical abilities when she was younger, she said she was not able to identify whether a certain note was higher or lower than a note that was just played before it. When Dr. Sachs asked Mrs. L to compare what she heard when she was listening to music, she said that music to her sounded as if someone took out all of the pots and pans from her kitchen and crashed them on the floor. Right? That is so different than how I experience music. Um, I'm so curious. I almost wish I could listen to music through her ears, or I guess through her brain, since our brain is where all of our acoustic information gets organized into what we perceive as music. So what is actually going on in the brains of people with congenital amnesia? From neuroimaging studies, researchers think that for people with congenital amnesia who have trouble processing musical pitch, there is a neural disconnection between two areas of the brain, specifically between the right auditory cortex and the right inferior frontal gyrus. Okay, I'm going to do my best to explain this on a podcast, so stick with me. The auditory cortex is the area of your brain that does a lot of basic processing of auditory information. It's one of the first places acoustic information goes in your brain before moving on to higher level brain areas for more refined processing. In congenital amnesia, the auditory cortex isn't talking to the right inferior frontal gyrus. This is located in the frontal lobe of your brain, which very broadly is responsible for helping you interpret the world based on higher level representations, like patterns of how you expect things to be. Here's the really interesting part, though. When measuring brain activity of amusics, their auditory cortices, that basic level of processing, that area is responding to pitches similarly to people with normal music abilities. The sensory information being input at that basic level of processing isn't the problem. What's missing is the input from the frontal gyrus, the inferior frontal gyrus, that helps interpret what the auditory information means in a broader contextual sense. So from what I understand, the brains of people with a congenital amnesia are processing pitches normally from a like bottom-up sensory experience, and they can even show neural responses when pitches are out of tune. But without that frontal lobe input from the inferior frontal gyrus, they're not consciously aware of when pitches are out of tune because the higher level mental representations of musical tonality isn't giving them conscious access to that musical context. Does that make sense? So 
Overall, though, it just goes to show how specific our music perception abilities can be to specific neural connections in our brain. There's one major disconnection that totally changes the musical landscape for people with congenital amnesia. Even though this neural disconnection is seen in the brains of people with congenital amnesia, it is not feasible to use neuroimaging to say whether someone has this disorder. So how exactly is amnesia measured and diagnosed? The main test for amnesia is called the Montreal Battery of Evaluation of Amnesia, or the MBEA. The MBEA has six subtests, three that test for someone's ability to discriminate different melodic properties of music, so like whether a tone is out of tune or the direction of a melody's contour. Then there are two subtests that test how well you perceive the timing aspects of music. And finally, there is a sixth subtest um, that tests your ability to remember short melodies that you've encountered earlier in the test against new melodies that were not a part of the test up until that point. If you scored two standard deviations below the average on a combination of melodic subtests, um, meaning you're in like the bottom 2% of performers, this is the cutoff that determines whether a person has amnesia. If you scored poorly on maybe the timing subtests, you may have another disorder called beat deafness, like tone deafness but for the beat of the music. but this is separate from the pitch processing difficulties that are typical in congenital amnesia that we've been talking about up until this point. So what's it like to take the test? The first five subtests involve the same type of task. You listen to a pair of short musical clips and just say whether they're the same or different. Depending on the subtest, different elements of the music may be manipulated so that the music clips could differ from each other on a really slight, like maybe one note is out of tune and you have to be able to pick up on that. Um, So let's try an example. I'm going to play a pair of melodies and your job is to judge whether the second melody is the same or different from the first melody. how'd you do? Uh, So those two were different. Uh, One of the notes was out of tune in that one. If you do want to take an online screener test, there's an online version if you search Amusia online screening test, and you'll find um, a test complete with other similar musical clips hosted by Macquarie University in Australia. Uh, This online screener test only has three subtests. It takes about 20 minutes to complete in total, and I will include a link in the show notes as well. I did take it myself, um, and even though my scores were fine, I did get a little paranoid at the beginning. Like, I didn't completely trust my memory at first for some of the clips, but as I kept taking the test... I don't know. I kind of just trusted my musical intuition more. And there were some super clear, out-of-tune examples. So if you do take the test, let me know how it was for you. Early 
Earlier in the episode, I described Mrs. L's musical experiences, which were pretty negative overall. She hated listening to music. She'd try to avoid it whenever she could. But I do want to throw out there that this negativity is not necessarily the case for everyone with congenital amusia. There's still a lot of variability in amusic's musical experiences. A survey done by Claire McDonald and Lauren Stewart looked at how folks with congenital amnesia use music in their everyday lives. For their study, they recruited 21 people diagnosed with amnesia and a control group with normal scores on the MBEA that matched the amnesic participants on age, gender, and musical training background. All the participants filled out three questionnaires, one about how they used music in a variety of everyday situations, like whether they listened to music while doing chores or while in the car, a second survey about the functions of music in their lives, um, so whether they noticed psychological changes when listening to music, like whether music made them feel nostalgic or comforted or sad, and the final survey asked questions about participants' attitudes to imposed music, which asked like how the participants felt about music that they did not have control over, like if they encountered music in public or... I don't know, maybe in the background scenes of a movie. As you might expect, people with amnesia were less likely than the control group to report incorporating music into their everyday lives. They experienced fewer psychological changes when listening to music, and they overall felt more negatively about music that they didn't have control over. That being said, people with amnesia still had a pretty wide range in how they appreciated music. Of course, some people were like Mrs. L, and they reported hearing total cacophony in music. Um, but in McDonald and Stewart's survey, 43% of the music's reported actually liking or loving music. That seems kind of wild to me, since, at least for me, perceiving pitches and melody seems so essential to musical enjoyment. But a music that enjoy some music may be prioritizing their attention to other aspects of the music. For example, one music participant said that listening to music from their teenage years could still evoke nostalgia, but only when they read the song lyrics. And there was one comment that I really want to share that melted my cold, cold, introverted heart. In the first survey about using music in everyday situations, 48% of people with amnesia reported that they were likely to use music to set the mood for a romantic evening, but not necessarily because they themselves enjoyed the musical ambience, but for the enjoyment of their partner. That seems so sweet to me that you'd be willing to sacrifice your auditory peace of mind because you know that your partner enjoys hearing music when you're being together as a cutesy couple. I love that. That's so sweet. All this to say, even though people with congenital amnesia can't process melodic or pitch information, that doesn't mean that they can't still have meaningful musical experiences. One of the most common types of musical experiences involve our emotions. We might listen to music to regulate our feelings or experience the feelings that someone else is having. But from the survey we just reviewed, we know that amusics may not experience emotions in music to the same degree as other people, but can they still recognize what emotions are being expressed in music? 
The last study we're going to review in this episode, it was done by Natalie Gosselin, Sebastian Paquette, and Isabel Peretz that explored whether people with congenital amnesia can still perceive emotions in music. Now, our ability to draw emotional meaning from music is really complex, but there are two musical elements that um, can be really big cues to help listeners clue into what emotion is being expressed. The first is musical mode, which is defined as a musical scale that often carries subjective associations uh, within a certain musical culture. Here in the West, music is usually written in either a major mode, which often has positive emotional connotations, or music might be written in a minor mode, which in Western cultures often carries negative emotional connotations. Another major cue for decoding emotional expression is the tempo or the speed of the music. Lots of studies have looked at how the combination of mode and tempo influence the type of emotions that we pick up when we're listening to music. So if we hear upbeat notes in a major mode, we often interpret this music to be joyful, If we hear notes that are slower and in a minor mode, it's often interpreted as sad. Gosselin, Paquette, and Peretz's study wanted to look at the degree to which people with congenital amnesia are able to interpret emotions in musical clips based on mode and tempo through a series of experiments. In their first experiment, they had adults with congenital amnesia and a control group listen to short clips of music composed for the experiment that were meant to sound like they were from a movie soundtrack. The clips expressed one of four emotions, happiness, sadness, peacefulness, or fear. The clips were presented in random order, and while listening to each clip, participants rated to what extent all four emotions were present in the music, on a scale from zero, meaning completely absent, to nine, meaning very present. So if they heard, like, this clip... They gave a 0 to 9 rating for all four emotions. And surprisingly, there was no significant difference between the Amusic Group and the Control Group's ratings for each clip's emotional content. The Amusic Group was rating these musical clips' emotional content at near-normal performance. The research team even did a follow-up experiment because they thought that maybe the melodies of this studies emotional musical clips were easier to process for the amusics than the MBEA that diagnoses amnesia in the first place. For this follow-up experiment, they used the same clips, but part of the clip was manipulated to sound off or out of tune. So the second experiment was more of a test of music perception than musical emotion recognition. For some of the clips, a subsection of the melody was shifted up 
a half step, which would sound very out of tune to a person with normal pitch perception. And some other clips had the same melodies as the original, but a subsection of the rhythms were like randomized. So when participants heard all these clips, they just had to answer yes or no as to whether they thought the musician playing the music got off track or whether it sounded like the performer had lost their place, even though the researchers had intentionally changed all this music. Results from the second experiment showed that people with amnesia scored significantly lower than the controls in detecting the out-of-tune pitch changes, and they even had more trouble than control participants in noticing the random timing differences. Alright, so this indicates that people with amnesia do still have trouble perceiving musical errors, but they're still somehow able to pick up on the emotional content of music. How is this possible? Gosselin, Paquette, and Peretz thought that maybe a musics are pulling this emotional information from listening to the tempo or speed of the music as an emotional cue. In a third experiment, they transcribed Western classical music clips that sounded either happy or sad. Again, in this experiment, there was an amusic group and a control group, and these groups listened to three versions of each classical music clip. The original version a second mode inversion version where the happy clips were changed from a major mode into a minor mode. So really quickly to give you an idea of what that might sound like, here is Mary Had Little Lamb, which is normally in a major mode. And here it is again, but just by changing one pitch, this is what it sounds like in a minor mode. pretty different, right? So they did that with all of the classical music clips, and then they did it vice versa. So all the sad minor sounding music, um, they changed some of the pitches so that it was in a major mode. And then a third version where the original mode was kept, but the tempo of all the clips was neutralized and set at 84 beats per minute. So participants listened to a random order of all three versions of these classical music clips, and they're told to rate the emotion of each clip from 1, which would indicate a really sad piece of music, to a 10, meaning a really happy-sounding piece of music. Then, the researchers compared each participant's emotional judgments for the original clips to their ratings for the mode inversion and the neutralized tempo versions of the same clips. Results found that both a music and control groups rated clips with a neutralized tempo about the same. So this indicates that the speed of music is an important cue for picking up on the emotional intent for people with normal music perception and people with amusia. But the amusia group did not use mode or tonality as much as an emotional cue. Although people with amnesia rated clips with a mode inversion differently than the corresponding original clips, their emotional ratings change less than the control groups in response to these pitch manipulations. Wow, okay, that was three experiments in one article. What are all the takeaways? What can we say about a music's ability to perceive emotion in music? Well, people with amnesia are able to discern musical emotions at rates greater than chance, and they probably pay more attention to the timing and the instrumentation of the music as cues rather than the pitches or the modes. 
In contrast, people of normal music perception use timing, instrumentation, and this pitch information. And, of course, people of normal uh, music perception are able to make more subtle emotional judgments of music than people with amnesia. Still, these experiments may help to explain why some people with amnesia like listening to music. Maybe they're enjoying the emotional content, even if they're not able to fully perceive the melodic patterns within the music. So most of you regular listeners already know this, but just in case you're tuning into instrumental for the first time, in my day job, I work as a music therapist, and I often say that everyone could potentially benefit from music therapy. Not that everyone wants music therapy, and not that everyone needs music therapy, but that a music therapist could potentially work with any type of client. I've heard of music therapists who work with deaf clients, which you might not expect, but I haven't yet heard of a music therapist working with a client with congenital amnesia. I'm sure it's happened, especially because like 2 to 4% of the population may have congenital amnesia. Um, but when I was writing this episode, I kind of had to check in with this belief I have about working with any type of client. Like, For me, what would it look like if I worked with someone with congenital amnesia? And the point would not be to cure amnesia, per se. I I don't think that's feasible. But I don't know. I guess if I had an amnesia client, a lot of my interventions would just have to be rhythmic. Um, Like, rhythm would have to be the foundational element. So maybe, uh, I don't know, doing a lot of drumming activities. And of course, this all depends on the clinical goal that we're working towards. Um, I wouldn't necessarily rule out using music with harmonies or melodies, since we know that people with amnesia are still capable of deriving certain information or enjoyment um, from music with these elements, but I think I would check in with the person a lot to make sure that the music was still meaningful to them and that it wasn't annoying to them. For practical takeaways from this episode, I'm curious if you or another person in your life, um, if you think they may have amnesia. Again, you can search for the online amnesia screener test, and there's a link in the show notes if you're curious and want to take it for yourself. But to be honest, there's a good chance, even if you're self-conscious when you make music, you probably don't have amnesia. So take relief in this fact. Um, If someone invites you to a karaoke night, um, you're going to be just fine if you want to sing outside of the shower with other people. I always encourage people um, to feel comfortable and, I know, to take ownership of their own musicianship, even if you don't have any musical training. All right, thank you again for listening to another episode of Instrumental. There is one more episode for season one coming up, and then we're going to take a little break so that I can prep for season two. For show notes and references to the research covered in today's episode, check out our website, instrumentalpodcast.com, for show notes and resources that were mentioned. Uh, Of course, please follow us on Twitter at at instrumentalpod if you haven't already, and I'll see you next Friday for the Instrumental season one finale. Thanks.